we have worked our way through this peoplehood curriculum to the to the third unit. We started with understanding Jewish peoplehood. Then we talked about belonging to the Jewish people, navigating divisive communities, and what members of a people owe each other. We did those units. Now we're in peoplehood and centrality of place. So if you have your table of contents and you're looking at the uh, sources, um, that is what we have done. We've done Judaism as an interpretive tradition, being and becoming, navigating divisive communities, what members of the people owe each other. Tonight, we are on unit three, class number one, the centrality of place. I wasn't sure, given the stature of this group, I wasn't sure that was going to be enough material for us. So I also gave you the next uh, class, which is diaspora citizenship and the modern state of Israel. Because the whole idea about talking about place is obviously talking about Israel. Um, And so I just feel like we're we're beyond a pediatric understanding and not, not that they're starting you at a place that they think is pediatric, but some folks truly have very little exposure and very little knowledge and you need to bring them in on the ground floor. Um, and, and we always should start there. We, Hartman's, you know, philosophy is very reconstructionist. We always start with Torah text, right? We move to prophets or the writings. Then we move to Talmud. Right. Then we move to sources after that. So that is how Hartman structures their learning so that we're starting with the most the most ancient of our discussions about whatever topic we're doing. That's why we start with Torah, not because it's authoritative, but because I mean, for some people it is. But like we start with Torah because that is the oldest conversation we have as the Jewish people about any topic. This is very reconstructionist. This is very Kaplan. If you want to know the Jewish idea about chairs, you need to look at chairs in the Torah, right? You need to go back to the original conversation. And the only one we have written down is Torah in terms of, in terms of the earliest stuff, ancient Israel. So we start there and then it's like, okay, how did the conversation evolve and progress from there? So that's kind of the Hartman philosophy. Um, and so we're going to start with the basics of the centrality of place. And of course, that's going to include both uh, sovereignty in the land of Israel and uh, what is known as Galut, exile. So we are considered to be in Galut, those of us sitting in this room. We are in exile. So you can imagine there's there's feelings for a lot of us around using even the language of Galut, right? That's how we have the language of diaspora. It's a little, it's a little nicer, right? To say that we live in the diaspora, but it still means we've been like dispersed, right? And um, and the objective always was to go back. So now we're living in a time where that's not true. So we're going to move from a time where there's sovereignty um, through uh, how we, how Jewish thinking evolves and what it means for the Jewish people, what it means for Jewish peoplehood to have changing understandings of, of our connection to place. Okay. So without further ado, let's jump in. So we're going to start with Torah. We're always going to start with Torah. All right. So one of the oldest conversations, you know, we have or, you know, texts we have about this idea of place and the centrality of place is from uh, Genesis. So on your source sheet, uh, you will look at Genesis 12 verses one through seven. Avram umi avicha el asher so God says to Avram, Lech lecha, go, go out, but it just doesn't stop there. Like go out, 
from your apartment and right, go somewhere far away. Because God doesn't say where Avram's going at all. So God could just say, go and I'll tell you when you get there, <laughs> right? But we get something about Torah's understanding of the importance of place when we get the list after Lech Lecha. And what is the list? Me'artzecha, from your land. Umi moldatecha, and from the place of your birth. Umi beit avicha, and from the house of your ancestor. So Torah is suggesting leaving is more than just leaving your house, because I mean, that's here, but it's more than that. It's leaving the place you were born. And many of us have an attachment to a sense of the place we were born that's different from where we live now. And it's different from our ancestors' house, maybe, right? Um, I was born in Philadelphia. I was adopted at five days and taken to my parents' home in New York. My parents have no association with Philadelphia whatsoever. Philadelphia was mythic to me right? It was on my birth certificate with this beautiful hand, whoever wrote it, you know, when they would hire people with beautiful calligraphy, right? Philadelphia. And that just had this incredible power for me um, that wasn't really explained by any kind of association of experience, right? It was about that's where I was born. So we have uh, your, your land, your, so your country. So we got the, the house, your house, the house of your ancestors, your family home, your the place where you were born, and then from your country, from your land. So what do we associate with land? Leave your land. What do we know people are leaving? What are you leaving? Do you leave your land? You're, you could be leaving work. So any kind of sense of financial security around how to make a living. Let's say Avram has enough that he's not worried. He's got plenty of flocks and servants and gold and whatever. So let's say he's, in this case, he's wealthy. He doesn't have to worry about that. He's a sheikh. Essentially, Avram's a sheikh. So he's he's got enough. So if it's not financial, what? and it could be financial in many cases, what, what else might it be? What, what are you leaving when you leave Artsakha, your land? You're leaving family, community. And in the ancient Near East, family slash community meant safety safety. You were safe if you were with your clan, with your tribe, or the tribe that you had an alliance with if things were going good on a certain Thursday, right? Then you were safe. So you're leaving financial safety, maybe. You're leaving social safety. You're leaving connection, like sometimes backwards, because you're looking at um, at the folks who have been there for a while. Um, what else? M- memories. You're leaving Memories, you're going to some place where you have no memories associated with that place. That is a very different reality, right? To be living it. Very good. You're leaving culture. You're leaving language. You're leaving weather, right? I always wondered how could people get off a boat? Sorry, Bubby. And like land in Duluth, Minnesota and go, oh, let's stay here. Let's live here. Uh, well, I'll tell you how that happened. They were Petersons and Andersons, and they were all people who came from exactly that weather pattern. So that was all very familiar to them, and it was very comforting to them. They had memories associated with that kind of, but, but you're leaving culture, language, weather, the, the geography, right, of a place. For me, it's often the foliage, right? There's a certain kind of something that happens for me when I see the trees of home. 
and home will always be Atlanta, Georgia, right? That the trees look right there. Trees don't look right anywhere else. They're lovely, but they don't look right. That's not how trees are supposed to, you know, that's not how it looks. <laughs> all right. So all of those things that we associate with comfort, with familiarity, um, sometimes with actually like the safety that we talked about, whether it's financial, whether it's community, but if you can't even speak the language, right? What is that? What does that mean? So now you can't even communicate who you are, right? And, and what's happened for you and how, how are you going to get along and how are you going to do all that when you can't even understand the language? So it is massive what it means to leave already your home, your ancestral home, from the place you were born. And then um, we get Artsakha, we get this idea of leaving your country, leaving your land and all that's associated with that. I don't think it's an accident that our foundation story as a people starts with Avram leaving all of that. It is not an accident, right? Because our story is always going to be, our story is going to be about creating that, right? Our whole story is about creating that, isn't it? Right? He goes to Canaan, he goes to Canaan, right? And then, then, oh no, Joseph, right? This only happens when they go to Egypt and they're stuck in Egypt. And what's the whole point of getting out of Egypt? To go to, back to Canaan, right? To this land where they are going to have sovereignty and be able to build the kingdom of God. That's so our whole story is about getting to the promised land. By the way, Torah ends where? Where does Deuteronomy book of Deuteronomy end? Where are the people? On, on the other side of the Jordan, right? By the way, our story doesn't end with us getting in. Yes. So Michael Goodman has a whole nother like explanation that because it wasn't five books, the Deuteronomic history goes into Joshua and Judges and Kings. And when you read the end of that story, we're back in Egypt. The whole Torah is a story of national failure. It is a complete story of failure. All right, but we're not going to do that because I don't know, it's kind of a bummer, but, but also it's an amazing like analysis of the whole thing because it's hubris and some other things that lead to that. Right. And so the whole Torah is actually a warning. Don't do what's in here. Do what it says you're supposed to do. Don't do what the Jews did. Right. So great. Okay. So I don't think it's an accident that it starts with Lech Lecha. This idea of place for us as a people starts with Avram leaving his place and beginning the journey to he doesn't know where. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him that curses you and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. Well, sort of. They will be blessed through you. Avram went forth as God had commanded him and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Avram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So he's not from Kna'an. He's from Haran. Avram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lutz and all the wealth that they had amassed because they had a lot and the persons that they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Kna'an. When they arrived in the land of Kna'an, Avram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem at the Terebinth of Moreh. The Canaanites, the Kna'anites were then in the land. That would make sense. The land is Kna'an. Who lives there? right? I'd be shocked if somebody else was living there. God appeared to Avram and said, I will assign this land to your offspring. And he built an altar there to God who had appeared to him. Okay. 
So we get this idea that he's moving towards Canaan and this idea that, that Avram's offspring will conquer this land. And this land will, in the future, he doesn't know when, he, you know, he's, what offspring? <laughs> um, but, but your offspring are going to conquer this. All right. So what, what we're not told. So what, what do you think is the significance of this whole thing where you have to leave everything, leave everybody, leave everything familiar to him, leave a place of her, leave it all. And this land is going to belong to your progeny. What is that about? What, 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 why, what? Why couldn't you just say where he was? Huh? Fresh new beginnings. Okay. What's so great about fresh and new? Certainly in the ancient world, could be, it, it was very scary. It was very dangerous. So yes, it's a fresh new beginning. We know that. But it's also like, what's going, okay, so this land is going to belong to your project. That's the whole point of this. Your progeny will conquer this land. We already have a premise here that that's a good thing, right? It didn't have to be. It could have been, you're going to have lots of children and they're going to live all over the world. And isn't that going to be fabulous? They're going to speak all kinds of languages. They're going to send you gifts from the wildest places they wind up. There's not the story. That's not the point. What, what is the point? The point is you're going someplace that's completely unfamiliar. And the whole point of you going there is so that your family, your family will take over the whole thing. It will be no longer Kanaan. And the Kanaan, what does Abraham think is going to happen to all the Kanaanites? Don't know. He's not told right now, right? Um, but all of this is going to belong to your kids. You, there is already an assumption of a people in a land being a good and important and critical enough thing for Avram to leave everything behind in pursuit of it. God doesn't do a selling job here, right? God doesn't have to defend this idea. It seems Torah takes it for granted that we understand what it means for an extended group to have a land that's theirs. Do you see what I'm saying? We always read it the other way, right? But really, Torah's assuming we already understand that as a value. Because why didn't God have to like draw up, you know, a whole campaign? For Avram, about why that might be a good thing. I mean, I think there's just a way that we get this as human beings and as people, but certainly um, the authors of Torah understood this. All right. Yes. There's no, I just realized, there's no effort to denigrate the Canaanites. You could, if you want to make an argument, so, you know, those people really need to need new leadership. Like, I'm going to, we're going to take, but there's not even an effort. And there's other places in the Bible where that is the argument. Right. But here it's like, I mean, it's sort of kind of stark when you see it just laid, just laid it out. When we read it in a different context. Exactly right. Exactly. What about the Canaanites? What about the Canaanites? Right? They have huge walled cities. Like they, it's a Manhattan, right? And it's of the Mesopotamia. And it's just like, uh, so the New Yorkers? Like what's going to happen to them? Dana? Isn't it a big deal that God is going to be going with them or is with them? Isn't that kind of a novel thing? You know, he's, you said, what, what's happening? What are they leaving? Well, there's, you know, some people leave their God, you know, their idol. 
But this is kind of a special situation because God is telling him, and I will be with you and I will bless you, you know. Right. Is that not significant? Some assurance by God, maybe to a concern that Avram and Sarai, certainly Sarai, um, if you've studied with me, you know, the text about her and Rivka, um, there's certainly for Sarai, but possibly for Avram too, that there's some, cons- there's some concern that deities are local. So if we leave where we came from and where we were born and in the language and all that stuff, we also leave the gods of this place. So, so it's possible that, yeah, that God understands that there might be a concern about that and is assuring Avram, right, that leaving doesn't mean leaving me. I'm going, I, I can travel. I'm a God who travels. Okay. All right. So let's, let's look at what happens. So, so there's this assumption. We know what happens. We know the whole story of, right, they, they eventually come into the land. All right. But then what happens? We also know what happens after the divided monarchy, after the united monarchy comes the fall of the north. And after the fall of the kingdom of Israel comes the destruction of Jerusalem, Judah, um, and the destruction in Judah of the first temple. So 586 BCE, we are talking uh, the destruction and therefore the carrying off, which is what happened in the ancient world, to prevent revolt. Whoever conquers would take local peoples and move them around. So people from Israel, from Judah, were exiled. They were, it was a forced march. They were exiled out and uh, the ruler would bring in a whole new population. That's who the Samaritans were, by the way. Um, the Samaritans were people who were placed there by the government um, to live there so that uh, the Jews wouldn't revolt. Okay, so let's look at Psalm 137. You're familiar with some of it. It's interesting to see it in its full text in this context, in this context of sovereignty and non-sovereignty, meaning exile. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat, sat and wept as we thought of Zion. There on the poplars, we hung up our lyres. For our captives, our captors asked us there for songs, our tormentors for amusement. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How? Can we sing a song of Yudhe on alien soil? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget. Let my tongue stick to my palate if I cease to think of you. If I do not keep Jerusalem in memory, even at my happiest hour. Zichor Adonai, Livne Edom, remember, O God against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they cried, strip her, strip her to her very foundations. So we're used to, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept. But I always think of it as kind of, they're, they're in mourning. It's terrible. You know, they've just lost a war. You know, But it's worse than that, right? The captors are taunting them, saying, all right, you musicians, you know, you're supposed to be so famous for, sing us a song of your of your homeland. Sing us, sing us one of your native songs, right? Well, what could be more torturous, right, than for people to sing songs in their native language about their native land, about the history of that land, about their sacred mythology, about everything while they are in 
captivity. Um, so uh, there's a, another layer of intensity under we sat down and wept because what? Like, you know, you can just imagine like all the layers of torture that is happening for those people. So this is the first set of responses we have to the reality of exile, of no longer being able to be in the land um, where it's your language, your history, your um, your stories, your memories, right, of associated with that place. And so then we get, we're going to look at the, the preaching of uh, the prophet Ezekiel. And does anybody want to say anything about the psalm? Okay. We're going to look at uh, Ezekiel, and he's preaching in the wake of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and so this is one of the ways that the prophets tried to deal with the issue of um, morale. Like, what do you what do you do in those early years of displacement, complete displacement as a people? Wh- how do you deal with morale? What what does it mean to be Israelite when you're not in Israel? <laughs> like, um, and so Ezekiel is one response. Then the word of God came to me. Source number three. Oh, mortal, I will save your brothers, your brothers, the men of your kindred. All of that very house of Israel to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem say, keep far from God. The land has been given as a heritage to us. Say then, thus says the Lord God, I have indeed removed them far among the nations and have scattered them among the countries. And I've become to them a diminished sanctity in the countries whither they have gone. Yet say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the people's and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they shall return there and do away with all its detestable things and all its abominations. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh, that they may follow my laws and faithfully observe my rules Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for them whose heart is set upon their detestable things and their abominations, I will repay them for their conduct, declares the Lord God. So Ezekiel's doing a couple of things here. Anybody want to? What do you see Ezekiel doing? Mm -hmm. Yes. But he's dealing with the trauma of of the destruction of the first temple. So what's he doing here? All right, look at verse 15. Keep far from the Lord. The land has been given as a heritage to us. What is he doing here? I will save your brothers, the men of your kindred, all of that very house of Israel, to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem say, don't worry about God and what the heck God wants. We've been promised this land. This is our land. What are you worried about? This is what Michal Goodman preaches is the downfall of 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 Judah, of Israel and Judah, is this Josiah going to war against Pharaoh um, in a much later story. Um, and that's when they are finally, the last remnants are removed to Egypt. Um, and so it's, it's, but it's this early, like this. So what is Ezekiel saying? Couple things. Yeah. I mean, he's basically saying it's conditional. Like if you, you can get kicked out. You're, you're, that's right. So, so it's conditional. Your, your right to the land is conditional. Y'all forgot that. So Ezekiel's also saying, 
this is your fault. <laughs> you asked for it, you got it, right? <laughs> I'm on time delay because it's in the evening. But I, I think I understand now what you said at the very beginning about Abraham. But the point is, is that we're going to do this together. You know, it's not like, um, I, I think that the, I, the first thing that we read about, a, uh, you know, God's promise, I will, it's, it's almost like a project. We're going to do this thing together. That's what's important, uh, there. Uh, and in order, to, and if you're in a partnership with someone, well, there's rules, right? Uh, you can't just, if someone does all the work for you, it's not a partnership. It's just, you know, a trust fund or something, you know, whatever it's, it's a different situation. And, and so that can, so with Abraham, it, the conditional is already there. And now with Ezekiel, we're seeing, Hey, you, you, you're not my partner anymore. Where'd you go? Yeah. Where'd you go? Keep far from God. I mean, the language could not be more clear, right? Like forget God, forget that relationship. Doesn't matter. That relationship is not what's, you know, what's going to determine your future. Well, of course, you know, a good prophet is going to say, nah, right. So, so it was conditional. You forgot, you, you dropped, you listened to the people who were pushing you to drop your end of this relationship. This is a joint project. And I have indeed removed them far among the nations and have scattered them among the countries. I did that, says the God of Israel. I scattered them. And now I've become a mikdash me'at. And that's not a good thing. I know we use it in our tradition talking about the rabbis calling each of us a mikdash me'at. This synagogue is a mikdash me'at, right? A small sanctuary, you know. So, but it's not, this is, this is derogatory. I've become diminished in their experience since all they can do is go to a little shtibel down the street because they're living under under other rulers. They're not living in the land of Israel at the glorious temple, right? And ce- celebrating the huge pilgrimage festival and all of those other things. But of course, the prophet Ezekiel, you, your morale is not going to be great if you leave them there. So like so many of our prophets and then the things that the rabbis take from the prophets and from Torah and from other places and the Psalms. And what do they put in? They put in, but I will bring you back. When you return to me, I will bring you home. I will bring you back. Then you can follow my laws and faithfully observe my rules, but only really in the land of Israel. Because you're not free to do that in other places. Seems, seems to me to be part of the suggestion here, right? When you come back and I bring you back, right? Um, and they get a new spirit and the, their heart, that stone becomes a heart, a flesh, then they can follow God's uh, rules and laws um, and they will be taken back. Um, but for those who won't relent, obviously, well, they will be repaid is all we're told. Um, so, so with Ezekiel, we also get the first glimmerings of what it is for people to settle outside the land of Israel. We just had captives on the way, but now we're getting a look at people who are settling outside uh, the land of Israel. And of course, historically, that, that continues. Um, and we can assume it's a, you know, a huge change in what they were able to do as a community. And we're going to talk a little bit about, about what that change might be. All right. So now we're going to look at a piece of Talmud from uh, the Babylonian Talmud. The important thing for you to know about this text 
is that there was a glorious synagogue in Alexandria. Huge, gorgeous, beautiful. We're going to read a little bit. Huge. It was like the talk of the, the pride, the talk of the Jewish world was this uh, Beit Knesset, this uh, synagogue in Alexandria. It was taught, Rabbi Yehuda said, whoever did not see the double colonnade of Alexandria in Egypt did not see the glory of Israel. So this is talking about the double colonnade of the synagogue in Alexandria. They said, it was like a giant basilica, stoa within a stoa. There were times when there were 600,000 people. Where did they get that number from? Any ideas? From the ones who left Egypt? Exactly. Exactly. This is not an accidental number, right? Just like the number who left Egypt. Where's Alexandria? In Egypt, <laughs> right? The irony is not lost on them here. I don't know if it's irony, but like, you know, th this is tongue in cheek. I don't know. Is it seriously critical? I don't know. Is it the new 600,000? Is this the new Israel? I don't know. Depends how you read it, right? And folks who love Talmud love to read it all of those different ways. And what's the teaching if you read it each of those different ways? But we don't have time for that. Okay. So um, there were times when there were 600,000 people like those who left Egypt. And some say double, <laughs> right? Um, and there were 71 gilt chairs corresponding to the 71 members of the great Sanhedrin, each of them worth no less than 210,000 gold talents. And there was a wood bima in the middle and the cantor of the gathering standing upon it with kerchiefs in his hands. And when it reached the time to answer amen, he would wave his kerchief. Can you see Chaim standing there like waving a handkerchief whenever it's time for you to say amen? And the whole nation would answer 600,000 or double would all answer at the same time. Amen. And they would not sit mixed. And this does not mean gender, by the way. What does it mean? But goldsmiths by themselves and silversmiths by themselves and glass blowers by themselves. And when a pauper would enter, he would recognize his fellow skilled men and head there. And from there, his sustenance and that of his household would come. So to your point earlier, Stephen Lewis, here is an answer to, if you're in exile, one of the things that might be very much of concern is financial security. Well, you get sovereignty, you get war, you get exile, then you get the great flash forward, you get the great synagogue of alexandria where they sat by profession so that anyone coming to the town who doesn't know anybody all they have to do is find their section and they will have a job they will be taken care of because what why i don't know you why 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 why, why would you go go sit with a bunch of people you don't know why would i help you you gotta help me What's happening? The Talmud is documenting what's happening with life in exile. It is no longer about the people's relationship to God and land. It is now about people's attachment to one another as part of the Jewish people. This is the experience of exile. This is how they begin, we begin to cope 
and change and evolve outside of the land of Israel, which is we start to be folk who are concerned with each other because we are part of the same people. The person who comes into the goldsmith section could have been from Iran. If you're Israelite, anyone who's not from Israel is non-Israelite. You're not part of the people unless you marry in. You can marry in, but you're still Midianite. You know what I mean? You're still Edomite, but you can, you can marry in. But you're, you know, you're not Israelite. So you're really one of the people, right? Do you see what I'm saying? And now it shifts to the important thing being you are one of our people. And therefore, we have an allegiance, an alliance, a concern, a relationship to overarching values like taking care of one another, loyalty, and all those things we saw when we talked about what does it mean to belong to a people. This is where it begins, is in exile because because the reality the fundamental reality of jewish identity changes from a relationship to nation and land to a relationship about peoplehood they have lost sovereignty they they've lost the temple they have no cultic system they have no priests they have they have nothing to organize them according to what they have known now it becomes we are members of a people And that has implications. Now the relationship is to a set of ideas and ideals and values about belonging, loyalty, commitment, protecting each other, helping each other, right? That's that's a new kind of identity from being a nation in a sovereign situation in a land. Where's God in this? In which? Right here, this moment, in this transition. It's not in the story. God's not in this story. She's not a story about God. Well, it's just God's not a part of the story. God, this is not about God. Commonality. Is it just trades? Well, where are they? They're in the synagogue. These are not Jews who are wandering around, you know, on the beach and they have different like camps for their different careers. They're in the shul. They're in this glorious, huge synagogue. So presumably they're, they're about participating in Jewish religion, which is no longer a priest, sacrifice, you know, right, all that stuff. It, it's something else. It's the Beit Knesset. It's the house of assembly. It's a house of gathering together. What's the time difference from the time that Avram left his homeland to different shuls? And- well, it depends when you want to place the Abraham narratives. So if you want to place them 2000 BCE, we're talking about 6th century BCE. So you do that math. Why is there so much emphasis on riches and money? Ah, okay. So let's look at Abaye. Abaye said, and Alexander the Macedonian killed all of them. Why? They were punished for violating the verse. You should not continue to return to Egypt. And yet they returned. So what's to you? Why did I say that's to your point? What is Abaye likely saying? You got too focused on the money. Right? What was Egypt criticized for? When we look at all those texts that talk about Egypt being like so decadent, it's all about a culture of death and gold and buildings and monuments and money and comfort and wealth and disparity of wealth. If this synagogue had 
Howland is 71, whatever his chairs made out of gold at right, right? And he can hold 600,000 people. That's a pretty wealthy community, right? And Abaya is saying, yeah, well, guess what? The Macedonian killed them all because they went back to Egypt. And we've been told, don't go back to Egypt. I think it's more than don't go back to Egypt. I think it's don't. They returned to exactly the things that God rescued them from, not oppression and slavery, but I mean, you know, that land. And there's a reason they're told not to go back there, because you shouldn't be like the ways of Egypt. You have the opportunity to build this glorious land. Okay, well, that got taken away from them. So what I say to Abaye is, well, what did you want them to do? Starve? But I think his criticism, you know, is... Who needs a synagogue for 600,000 people with gold chairs, right? And that it's so big, the cantor has to wave a napkin around to signal it's time to say amen. That means that people can't even hear the prayers. It's assuming they don't have prayer books, right? There's no printing press yet. So they don't have prayer books. So you think you're bored with a prayer book? Imagine. You don't even have a prayer book and you can't hear the prayers, Right, that's just decadence and opulence. I think Abaya is saying to the to exactly your point, Faye. Yes, I was just going to say that maybe it's because if they do have the prayer books and they can't read, so then that's why they're waving the handkerchief too. So okay, so possibly they have. Well, presumably, if you have a prayer book, you would be able to read. They were very expensive; it had to be handwritten. Think about it. There's no printing press. So to have a, a, a book with all of the prayers written out would have been extravagant. So if you didn't read, but that's the other reason the rabbis crafted things were so that when I say the Imaru, y'all say, Amen. Right? So because you weren't supposed to have to have a prayer book. That was the whole point. Because if you couldn't read or couldn't afford one, there was supposed to be no embarrassment to you or any limitation for you participating in the service. I think but, you know, like you can imagine, they can't even hear the, the prayer leader saying V'imru. So the cantor, when someone says V'imru, and the cantor goes, we should try it. Excellent. David. Sorry. No, I had, uh, th- there was another class I took here with Rabbi Shira about the meanings of the prayers, the, the prayers that the rabbis crafted post-Second Temple. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I, it suddenly clicked for me that it's kind of like a, like you've been kicked out by your spouse, right? And you're, and now you've got to act really remorseful to get let back into the house. And now, now I'm thinking back about those classes and the nature of the prayers and the flattery mixed with the remorse. And, and it seems like they're kind of designed to, you know, can I move back in with you guys? You know, like I'm really sorry. And, 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 uh, you know, I'm starting to see those. The prayers that we're so familiar yes. with in, 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 in different light. Different that, light. Yeah. Thank God. That's job security. So that the, the point is that you, because what you're seeing it through the lens of is what are they sorry? You know, like what, what is all the sorry, you know, about, right? And it's, it's about, I want to come home. The guilt. I mean, <laughs> but I want to come home. So what there is now, and they point this out in Hartman, is now there's this tension between how glorious the synagogue of Alexandria is. And the crappy little shul they have in Jerusalem that was a disaster zone. Like, which one would you rather worship? So I think there's this tension between the absolute smashing success that Jews have had in the diaspora, 
versus our prayers say, take us back to Jerusalem. We want to come home. We want to be home. Um, and then we're sitting in this room. They didn't have the opportunity to go there and have sovereignty. They were living under whatever the empire was that had conquered Israel, whether it's the Romans or the Greeks or the Seleucids or the, you know, whoever, right? That's who they would have had to go live under. So a lot of Jews chose not to do that. They were doing pretty well where they were. Thank you very much. But even after 48, when we had the opportunity to go back, how many of us signed up for that mission? None of us signed up for that. Like We're in Alexandria going, we really like our gold chairs. It's, it's a very real tension. And there are times where I even feel that tension when I'm saying certain prayers, right? I'm like, but I don't want to go back to right. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, Lori, you've had your hand up. Sorry. Yeah. Um, on that same point, what I was thinking about the the condemnation of the synagogue in Alexandria is, if you have all these pillars and all this furniture, it's a sign of you're intending this to be permanent. This yes. is isn't. We're in exile. We don't have the opportunity to be in the land of Israel. We'll make the best of it while we're here, but we're not going to put our roots too deep. And nice. so I so I think that that's a big part of the problem is, yes, while you're in Galut, be a community, take care of each other, but don't make that your new home. Don't get too comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a modern Midrash. I don't know if it's true, but I, I, I tend to believe it, that I was told if you look at the Sifre Torah in the Ark, of any community in the diaspora, you can tell how comfortable that community was in terms of danger by how big the Torah scrolls are, how much stuff they have on them, how big the ark is, or if it's a little tiny Torah, you know, with like a, a nice little embroidered whatever, it means you can pick it up and go, right? <laughs> if we have to get out of here, you can't take what we have in these arcs, right? It's, it, it's heavy. And I'm talking about fleeing, you know, like I'm talking about, we got to get out of here. Um, and so that same idea, right. That, you know, how, however big everything was, it meant that, that we understand this to be permanent. And then, and then what, what does, what does that mean? Right. That it's, that, that we do think it's permanent and that we want it to be, if you're one of these Jews, right. In the synagogue of Alexandria. Um, so, so, so this idea of there's a tension um, and Abaye, my, my curriculum notes say, uh, reveals a sense of anger that people would establish diaspora life, even as life in Palestine is thriving. So now you're talking about two communities. You know, this is begins to be the rise of two communities, a community in Palestine that's doing pretty well and Jews who don't want to go back there to contribute to that. Right. So not under an oppressive regime like, you know, um, what's his chops, the Hadrianic persecutions, you know, when it starts to get pretty OK. But the Jews in Mesopotamia, I mean, the Jews in Mesopotamia, the Jews of um, of Babylonia are just like, hmm, don't think so. Right. They're talking about the synagogue in Alexandria. But who are they really talking about? <laughs> the rabbis of the academy, the rabbis in Babylonia. They don't want to give it up and go back um, and build the second commonwealth in the land of Israel. And they are heavily criticized um, for it. Um, and, and there begins a tension that we live with uh, until today. Um, so, so my curriculum says to ask you the question, what do you think are central features of Jewish life 
in the diaspora today? Like what, what are some of the things that you would say are features of Jewish life in the diaspora? So we talked a little bit about a few of them. I think there still is this sense of association, right? The sense of if I move to a new town, the first place I'm going to go is the JCC, right? Or, you know, start figuring out how I can access Jewish community, right? So this, this sense of, of belonging, the sense of taking care of each other, of, of, um, you're more familiar to me or possibly easily more familiar to more easily familiar to me than somebody I don't know who I meet at a dinner party. Right. Well, unless you're gay, <laughs> we always have that, but any, huh? Birthright. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. That is a generational response. That is fascinating. So Kayla says birthright, right? So for her, it's like diaspora Jews, one of the things that means is you are given the opportunity by the Jewish community, Davka, to go there, <laughs> right? That the diaspora Jewish community will make it possible for you as a member of the Jewish people to go with other Jews back there to come home afterwards, of course, let's be very clear, but like, you know, but, but to form an attachment with the Jews, the people of the land of Israel. Very interesting. Remind me that I want to write that down um because i think that is a generational response this is the first generation to say that we didn't have birthright none of us had birthright right all right jeff can you hear me yes okay um this may sound a little corny but it's me um all of this is a wonderful feeling in my heart when i was a young man bar mitzvah time playing sports the the, the team team the team, that's what we're building here and what they were building and new rules. I feel like starting the soccer league or the hockey league or a football league, starting to build all these ways of working together with people you may never even have met that you want to trust now and you want to work together with them for these goals. I think that is also a generational response. Yeah. Why do I say that? Do we have Jewish soccer leagues now for the most part? <laughs> No, our kids play soccer with the high school team or the club or the whatever. The Maccabia was designed to, to do what Jeff is talking about because it doesn't exist anymore. That's gone. There isn't sports teams that brings Jews together. They made the Maccabi games to do that. That's what I meant. Because it's gone, right? You, you used to, you had to form Jewish leagues because you weren't allowed to play in the other ones. Right. Or you got beat up or whatever. And, you know, my father told stories all the time about getting beaten up on the way to school, right? And right. on the way home. Um, but, um, and so now we've created birthrights <laughs> and Maccabi games, <laughs> Maccabi <laughs> in order to like, um, have these, these responses that, that have, you know, it's very interesting. Yeah. All right. So the other thing I'm supposed to ask y'all is, I can't read it, it's a glossy paper. What are the differences that you, differences that you see between the focus of Jewish life in the diaspora and Jewish life in Israel? This gets pointed out to me a lot by Israelis. Difference between Jewish life here and Jewish life in the land of Israel. We're talking outside the Haredi community, obviously, because the Haredi community is the same either place in some ways. You don't have to worry about literal survival here in the diaspora the way you do. In Israel. Literal. Did you say literal or liberal? Literal. Okay. Literal. That's an important distinction. 
literal survival as in, mm-hmm. you know. So it, we, we, we tend to talk about it as existential survival. Like existentially, Israelis are worried about survival as Jews in a way that we don't have to think about. Not that there's not anti-Semitism. I know there is. I'm going to get an email. There's still anti-Semitism, Rabbi. So yes, I know that. But existentially, we are not concerned about living <laughs> like, or dying this week. Um, and in Israel, it is absolutely a fact of life that they are existentially aware that it's a couple of nukes from Iran and it's done. Mm-hmm. Kayla? Assimilation? Assimilation here, here, here versus in Israel. Yeah. Okay. Talk to me about that a little bit. Uh, I feel like we've had a class on this or something before, but just like assimilating more into culture here and like being Jews, Jewish. Are we American Jews or Jews here in America? Okay. I want to push on this because yeah. it's very interesting to me, this topic of assimilation in, in America versus assimilation in Israel. Tell me what. No, 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 no. Don't give that microphone away so fast. Tell me what, I'm very curious about this. Tell me what assimilation, what is an assimilate, what are the features of an assimilated Jew in America? What do they do? What do they not do? Probably what do they not do, right? What makes them assimilated? What are the characteristics? Uh, Everyone can chip in. They what? Yeah. They don't keep kosher. They don't keep kosher. They don't go to synagogue. They drive on Shabbat. Hospitalum. We think of ourselves as American Jews rather than Jewish Americans. We've had this conversation, yeah. so um, we're not going there again. But we we think of ourselves, I think what Becky's trying to say is primarily as Americans who are of, of a certain flavor, right? So we, leaving aside Becky's point, to everything you said, what about Jews in Israel who don't keep Shabbat, they don't go to shul, they don't keep kosher. They drive on Shabbos. Are they assimilated? You know, but the country. Was the way Kayla say? They maybe just aren't religious. Okay. That, that is what I want to explore a little bit. That's that. That's do you see? Do you see? Okay. Cause if they're not religious here, they're assimilated in a way that feels threatening. But if you're in Israel and you're completely non-religious, are you an assimilated Jew? Dana? Dana? I don't think so. No? I don't think so. Dana, speak. What's happening? Can she not hear? Can y'all hear me? Dana. Yes. Dana. Okay. Dana? I can't hear. Dana. Talk. Talk. Dana. Can you hear me? I'm yes. Back. Okay. Well, you froze. I just wanted to say in Israel, you might not be lighting Shabbat candles, but the entire country is having Shabbat. You are being Jewish here. You know, it's it's easy to be Jewish in Israel. It's not easy to be Jewish in America. So I want to push I on that. Again, if but, you're, the whole okay. country is doing Shabbos and you're not, why are you more Jewish? Just because the whole country is doing it. And Dafka, you're not. You're at the mall. The mall is usually closed. But we are, you're at the mall on Shabbos. What, what, why are you more Jewish? You're making a conscious effort in a country that's giving you Shabbat to say, no, thank you. Do you see what I'm saying? It's it's a fascinating conversation. The only reason I care about it or I'm curious is because I get this conversation with Israelis all the time. And I'm not sure I accept it anymore. I'm not sure I buy it. You are just as assimilated as I am. You're just assimilated into a different nationalism, into a different 
broader, consumerist, individualist, materialistic culture. It just speaks Hebrew. Now, you could argue, okay, well, that's it, Rabbi. There's the key. They're speaking in Hebrew. They're defying Shabbos in Hebrew. <laughs> They're shopping on Shabbos in Hebrew. And I might give you some ground there. Right, that they're still speaking the language of the Jewish people. But I really, I get a little, I get, okay, not more than, I get more than a little. I get very annoyed when Israelis want to talk to me about America will be the death of the Jewish people. Judaism will die. It's only in Israel where the Judaism can flourish. I'm like, what Judaism? You don't do Judaism. You do Israeli nationalism. You are not doing Judaism. You are doing Jewish nationalism. So just saying, just saying, we'll see what happens. <laughs> this could be a very interesting three weeks. Stephen. So what do you define as the bar of assimilation? Meaning, <laughs> okay, well, I won't keep kosher and I won't drive. So those are two things that would give me weight. Does that make me less assimilated or more assimilated? Where's the line? Who knows? That's the argument, I think. And that's where people get really, that's where some of the tension happens for those of us who care about this conversation. That's where the tension happens. Who are you calling assimilated? Right, right. What, what does it take? Does it mean I sent my kids to after school religious school? So they hated it as much as I did. Good. I'm Jewish. Like that, check that box, right? Is it, is it that I can read the olive bet, right? And I sit through boring services that I hate just like you do, like once a year? Like what? Where's the bar? It's a really good question, David. I hate to throw your own words back at you, but <laughs> in a previous class, you said um, we, you actually don't get to quit. You don't get to assimilate as a Jew. You can't say, um, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Of, I'm out. You know, deal me out. Basically, you're still a Jew no matter what you do. You can't you can't get out. You can't assimilate. I mean, you can try, yeah. but no, but okay. I can answer my own words. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I like it when I can answer myself because sometimes I scare myself. So, um, the, the answer is it's Jews accusing other Jews of being assimilated, not someone who comes to me and says, Rabbi, I don't have to be Jewish just because you say I'm of the Jewish people. I'm not Jewish. And I'm like, Yes, you are. <laughs> you don't have to ever come home, but you're still Jewish. Well, then I can find a Jew that will consider another Jew not religious enough. Give me any Jew and I'll find another one who doesn't looks down on that one. Correct. So this is this is part of the problem is that we turn on each other and we use words like assimilated as a derogatory and as a way to put down other people's doing Jewish, whatever that looks like for them. Um, this but but if you take someone like Chabad, they don't care. God bless them. I got to give that to them. They don't care how assimilated you are. Wherever we put that bar, Stephen, wherever we put that bar, Chabad doesn't care. You are redeemable. And I have to try because you can't leave. You're still a Jew. So I need to try to get you back. It's, it's, it's non-Haredi Jews who look at other Jews and start talking about who's assimilated and, and how much and, and the danger of that and all the gushrying, right? It's from Jews. But, but if you're saying it's redeemable, that means you have fallen. That, it's, all yes, yes. it's all negative. Yes, for Chabad, you have way fallen. Well, of course, like, you know, like you have way fallen, Stephen. But they have hope. 
And for them, it is existential to phase point. They are not worried about existential survival today or this week in a bus bombing. Their existential concern is the survival of the Jewish people. And they believe non-practice will lead to the the distinction, the extinction of the Jewish people. And if the Jewish people don't do what they're supposed to, who can't come? Mashiach. We are actually killing the possibility of Mashiach coming by not doing lighting Shabbos candles, right? So for them, it's an existential issue. So they're, they're willing to invest whatever it takes to get you back. They don't care so much about us, but except for reproduction. But, um, Lori? Um, I kind of think that the whole concept of assimilation is of a prior generation and it's really outmoded at this point that there was a time where Jews couldn't blend in no matter what they do. They weren't allowed to blend in. They couldn't blend in. Then you get this period like in America where if you chose, you could blend in. You could Your Jewishness could disappear and you could just be out in public. And so I think that was the whole concept. Are you going to make that choice to blend in? I think that we've gotten past that conceptually to now I think the living in two civilizations is just a given for American Jews. And it's not inconsistent to be Jewish and to also live a very obviously American life where your Judaism isn't visible to anyone that you're not interacting Jewishly with. So two things. One is that that's why there's a distinction between diaspora and Israel. That's why we said that, because I think you're right. But I also think for them, it's a very big issue that we have the opportunity to walk in two civilizations, one of which is not Jewish. Mm-hmm. And it is an existential threat in their minds to Jewish continuity and Jewish survival. Right. The religious agree with them here and there. And many of us American Jews, shh, don't tell anybody, feel like we're moving deck chairs on the Titanic. There are many times we feel walking in two civilizations is not really happening. We're walking in one civilization and dipping our toe in the other a couple of times a year. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here to be critical of that. I'm, I'm here to say it keeps many of us up at night. Are we doing enough walking in both civilizations, which is why I wanted to do this class, which is why I want to be having these conversations and not just about the topic du jour, you know, whatever the issue is that's going on, which are important things to discuss. Also, don't get me wrong, but like, I, I want to share this conversation with other people who might care because so, otherwise it's rabbis talking you know, in, in an echo chamber and we're very concerned. So I think you're right that it's normative for American Jews. Assimilation is taken for granted. And thank God. I mean, I will say as a woman, as a lesbian, as a whatever, as a woman rabbi, thank God. On the other hand, I, we, a lot of us worry. And to your, and, on the Jewish Titanic. Sammy, I saw you had your hand up and then you put it down. And I'm glad you put it back up because I was going to call you out. So talk to me, my friend. Uh, uh, thank you. Yeah, I think that um, Judaism faces an existential crisis in Israel, just as it does in the United <laughs> States. Go get them, Tiger. And, uh, you know, um, a great percentage of young Israelis are, are now leaving Israel in order to get married. For instance, 
they don't have as many options of ways to practice Judaism as Jews in America or elsewhere in the diaspora have. And that's creating, I think, as much of a crisis of Judaism as we have here in America. Nice. So I I think that's absolutely true. I think that's absolutely true, which is why I pushed back on why if you're in Israel driving on Shabbos and Shabbos and whatever, how, how are you not assimilated, right? Why, why is that less dangerous? Why is that less threatening to the people who want to say uh, Judaism is de- endangered in America? Do you know what I mean? I think you're exactly right. I think there's a brain drain in Israel. There's a whole lot going on that are driving people, you know, away from Judaism, away from, you know, from an Israeli identity. And, and I think there's a major crisis there. We see it all the time on the news right now, the clash and the polarization, right? That's happening in Israel. And, and you're right. It's at a flaring, but it's at a crisis point. I a hundred percent agree. No, uh, I wanted to lift up something you just said about walking into civilization. Mm-hmm. So you want to say a little more about that because you said dipping your toe. So. Let's focus on this. I, I don't know that I have much more to say. I, I don't. I, what do you want? What do you mean by focus on it? What What would you like to hear more about? Well, I, I think how does that manifest from your vantage point? Well, well, I I think what I'm concerned about is that we we say we're walking in two civilizations, and yet we're a 900 family congregation. How many people are dipping their toes in here? More than. A couple of times a year. And I'm not, again, I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to sound judgy. I want to be very clear. I am not saying this in a pejorative way. I'm saying this in a deeply concerned and caring way of what are we doing as an American? This is Yehuda Kurtzer's point too. He's the you know, president of Hartman, North America. And he, he is a staunch American liberal Jew. And he, he says, what is the American Jewish legacy to the Jewish people? What are we doing that generations from now are going to look back on and say, wow, that generation contributed X, you know, Y and Zeta to the Jewish people and thank God for them? I think the answer is partially that there is 800 families, that it isn't defined by religious criteria, and that within that pandemic, Everybody that chose to be a member reaffirmed their their being part of the Jewish. Sure. So that that's the optimistic side of the argument. Yes, I agree. That's what gets me going in the morning, right? That I'm just saying. To be honest, there's times I'm up at three, and in staff meetings, trying to figure out, you know, what 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 will it take? And even if even if we have this institution survive. And enough of a Jewish identity that we have 900 families who choose to be part of this project, which is what I hang on to all the time. Okay, we're doing some right. Um, I do wonder about Yehuda's question. What are we really contributing to the evolution of the Jewish people? A way to be North American, 21st century, what? Okay, is it so great? I think you're way more involved in a lot of stuff than a lot of people. I think you're exposed to a lot more of the groovy good stuff than a lot of people. I really believe that. I, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be self-disparaging, but I, I, I take Yehuda's question seriously. If it's just survival of this institution and raising another generation who can have a bar mitzvah, okay, I, I'm willing to spend the rest of my career on that. I, don't get me wrong. Like, I am happy to spend the rest of my career on that. In the back of my soul whispers the question of Yehuda. What is the big project? 
of this generation of Jews. What are they going to look back at us and go, oh, thank God. They, I don't know. Stephen? Well, I, and I'm glad Mark brought it back to KI because KI does foster its own brand of Judaism in a way, which is probably different than, than other communities. And we had this conversation yesterday where you were talking about a congregant who did not come to synagogue very often, but we provided enough support that they wanted to stay members. And in that conversation, you felt like you accepted that as involvement on some level. And so it's evolving. I mean, people are finding ways to be part of KI that are not traditional. And I don't know why that's a bad thing. So it's not. But let me be very clear when I said that was enough for me. It was enough for me in what I thought I was expected to do with that conversation next. I felt like, okay, like this is, this is how attached they are. They're going to stay members. I've done what I can by reaching out. We have this outreach campaign. For those of you who don't know, we're reaching out to folks who feel, you know, that we feel like are not, we're not connected to. And so in that phone call, I felt like, okay, that's really, there's nothing else for me to do here. And I felt okay about that. You know, we're doing well, we're thriving. Is that it? Is that the goal to like do okay and the building stays and we have a nice sanctuary and do, do you know what I mean? Hey, hang on, Jeff said, Jeff, is your hand up again or was it up still? What? Is your hand up from the last time you spoke? No, I, I, I'm reacting to what we're talking about right now. Okay, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Uh, take it as a wish, however you wish. What you're doing is what counts. I don't care how corny that sounds. I mean, and that's what I said, team. The other word I've used, you've heard me say before is tribal. We have to pass on the spirit of being Jewish to the children. It has to, I, I, this is so, I mean, it sounds so obvious, but it isn't. How do we, I mean, we, we people have talked about what's going on in Israel. What's frightening to me? We have to somehow, I remember, I mean, being a kid, being in Temple in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and gathering as groups and giving these young, getting this wonderful feeling of belonging to this temple there. And I'm saying the most obvious thing, but we have to have faith in our ability to pass our hearts, our souls, and our intellect to me, that's one of the great things about being Jewish. It's not just believing in God. It's believing as ourselves as a group of people who have held up and fought for each other through all the things we've seen over the last, well, couple hundred years and thousands of years. And okay. it, it's, I'm sorry, I know I'm being incredibly obvious here, but we no, can't give up. We just can't give up. Okay. Thank you. David? No, I think, I mean, just to, to bring the, discussion full circle and bring in Israel. I mean, from what I've observed, and I have, you know, four kids of my own and my own struggles with getting them more involved with Judaism. I think the existence of the state of Israel is overwhelmingly a blessing, but it also makes it more difficult to be in diaspora because the feeling is, oh, those guys, they have it covered, basically. So you're complaining uh, about the about the Jews who don't do anything, but at least they're living there, you know, and it's almost like I don't have to worry about being Jewish or about learning too much about Judaism because they, they've got my back. The serious, you know, the Israel is going to handle it. The experts are over there. Yeah. The experts are over (laughs) there. And, um, you know, they don't, they don't really need me 
that much. And also, I think in, in my lifetime, most of our lifetimes, we've seen Israel go from, you know, you could say like a needy country to a pretty powerful country. And, and people are very uncomfortable. They, they love the, the sort of victim Israel. That was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But as soon as as soon as it started to use with uh, guns, not so much. Yeah, not so much. Yeah, the, the 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 power really. So now you now one of the things of being in the diaspora is you find yourself, you know, it's more difficult to defend Israel now than it's ever been, especially yes. with the current government. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, like I, you know, uh, uh, you know, what am I supposed to say? Like, I don't even want to get in the arguments anymore. Right. Because um, it's so not helpful. A. Not it's not helpful. But I, but I do think. I do think um, I do think the sort of malaise that you're describing. I I mean, as much as I'd like to come and say that you're doing everything great and nothing to worry about, I sort of agree with your own malaise that there's a feeling among American American Jews, especially that uh, Israel they'll handle all that all that stuff. You know, we'll 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 sort of you know we'll, we'll do our thing here and we'll go to birthright and we'll do that, but but we don't feel a tremendous burden of responsibility yeah. collectively. I don't think yeah. so. I, I I would agree. I would agree. Um, Victoria? I can't speak for much other than since converting, but even before I was uh, in generative conversation, and that's what I'm going to speak right now, briefly, very short. I When I think about the legacy of Israel, even 30 years ago, there were people on the planet who said, my God, what an opportunity. If Israel can make peace in the area with the Palestinians, with all of those Arabs, there's no excuse on the planet that we couldn't have peace. So I keep looking for, you know, they're looking for a stand for righteousness and for peace and well-being and health for everybody on the planet. And I think it's a unique opportunity that's getting, that's just been forgotten. And I think that's who we are when I think about a legacy that I want to pass on. And no, I'm an American, doesn't matter what my nationality is. When I be Jewish, I see that that's what I want brought forth on the whole planet. I'm a global citizen. So is are each one of us. And if anybody... <laughs> A, a group that has been in diaspora for how many years? <laughs> Thousands. We ought to know that we're global, that we live, we fit in. We have experienced the fitting in, the not fitting in, the being persecuted, the not all over the globe. We know all of our family of human beings without nationalism. So I just want to toss that little thing in here. Nugget out there. Yeah, that we could talk about for six hours. Thank you for that, Victoria. Um, so lots going on there, lots to unpack there. Um, but um, yeah, right. Sure. If, if Israel could figure it out, then the rest of the world could be at peace too. Well, guess what? The rest of the world is not at peace because Israel can't figure it out either. Right? <laughs> All of our Jewish values about peace, justice, whatever, what's happening in this country? They're rolling back our rights. So it's not going so well for the cause of peace, justice, and whatever. It's not going but there so is well something right about not <laughs> being the victim, Rabbi. There's something about not being the victim in all of those conversations. In anything you want to unpack, there's some healing to be done. There's bringing up the past so we can look at it. There's and maybe that's of one of our roles. Done, for sure. <laughs> you know, the PTSD of our history, you know, there, there's so much healing to be done. And it's like, what do we do with that healing? So, um, 
So that is the, that's the business of, of places like KI. That, that's our job, right? And the places like Hartman and places like IJS and places where it's like, like so what, what is this project about? Like, what is, what is it about, you know, American Judaism 2023 that's going to make the world a better place? What, what do we contribute? Right. That, that's, that's a, that's a question I, I would like us to just as a, as a globe, as a community to sit with a little more. You know what I mean? Like, what are we about? What are we, what are we contributing to the next generations? And I don't mean just our grandchildren. I mean, you know, down the road when we, when we look at, you know, thinkers before us, you know, and their innovations and that's not just innovative. I don't mean just like, Oh, we have to have some brand new idea, but I mean, what, what is it that, that, that moves something from being okay. So we're here, we're hanging on, (laughs) you know, to we are a robust effort towards fill in the blank. It it needs to be making the world a better place, or I don't think anything has a right, you know, there's no point for anything if it's not about making the world a better place. So that needs to be the the end sentence, but you know, uh, what what comes before, what what comes before the semicolon, (laughs) you know, uh, of that sentence, I think is the, that's the that's the grand stuff about KI and the grand stuff about the American Progressive Jewish Project that I that I care a lot about and wanted to have a conversation with you all about. So I just want to say again how deeply grateful I am that you all take time out of your evening and out of your week. I know because one of the issues is how busy and how technology is just challenging all of our abilities to just hang on by our fingernails to our own schedules, you know, and what we're supposed to be doing or preparing or emailing or, you know, preparing next. And um, so I just want to say thank you so much for your time and attention. This gives me hope. It fuels me. Thank you for being my counselors uh, and for uh, listening to me so that I can go home and like maybe sleep a little tonight. And um, look at your list for what you're interested in talking about. We'll, con- we'll continue a little bit of this conversation. I didn't think it would take the whole time, but look at that. Um, and so we will we will continue some of this conversation next time you have your sources uh, and we will make some decisions about, about where folks want to go. Thank you all for your attention.